0: Good evening. It's, um, for me, it's been actually I've been the recipient of God's blessing more than you guys have. Uh, being able to connect uh, and see what God is doing here, I'm so excited. When oh, and Steve um, and I c- first connected about Australia, I had no idea what Australia was like. Uh, like all of you, um, it's like you have images of other countries uh, in your mind. I, I, I'm thinking Australia is just full of kangaroos everywhere. Uh, I only saw one kangaroo so far, or a few kangaroos at a zoo. <laughs> That's the only place I saw. But when I uh, arrived here, the thing that really impressed me the most were the people, and especially this church. And you guys have been such a blessing to me. So on behalf of of uh, our church, even Ambassador, and uh, our family, just say thank you so much for making me feel So uh, be a part of your family, and and I'm really thankful for that. So let me um, uh, begin by um, sharing you just a little uh, story. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer together. But before I pray uh, for the message, um, one of the things about uh, preaching is that you have to be very careful in what you say. Uh, James chapter 3 reminds us that when you preach, you're going to be judged more strictly uh, than those who don't. And so the Word of God really is important. And so one of the things that I try to do is I try to preach through the Bible. And so rather than just uh, preaching my opinion, um, I want to make sure that I preach God's Word. And I learned that lesson very early. Um, I was an intern at a very large white Caucasian church. In, the, in America called the First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton. And a senior pastor happened to be one of the most famous pastors uh, during, during that time. He uh, was on the radio. He was on, uh, wrote many books. And, um, and so we always talked about the accuracy of God's word. Well, after my internship, uh, I had the privilege of being ordained by that church. Uh, and they were laying hands on me. So during the ordination, uh, they asked me, to choose my life verse. So I said to them, okay, think about what is the verse that you want to put on your ordination Uh, that will be a verse that would sort of symbolize kind of your ministry and that would sort of epitomize what you want to achieve in in ministry. So as a good young pastor, I chose 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And so that was the verse that I chose. And so it says this in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing of his kingdom, I give you this charge. Uh, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and courage with great patience and careful instruction. Now any good pastor knows this verse because our job is to handle the word of God accurately. Well... When the ordination certificate was presented to me, uh, when they said, oh, Pastor Ray, here's your ordination certificate, I looked at the ordination certificate and something was a little off. And what was off was that instead of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it was 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now what's the big deal, right? It's only a one book apart. It's, it's the same thing. So this is what 1 Timothy says. So this has become my life verse. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. These teachings come from hypocritical liars whose conscience has been seared as a hot iron. So my mission in life is now to deceive everybody. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But but it really reminded me, it was kind of funny that when I received my ordination certificate, that that's what was on there. And then, of course, before I actually got the real certificate, they changed it back to 2 Timothy. But isn't it interesting how something very small could make a big impact? And today, that's what I want to talk about. Uh, When I look in this congregation, you are, in some sense, a a small congregation. And yet, I believe that this congregation has the opportunity to make an amazing, major impact for the kingdom of God. And what I'm going to share with you are principles that we have applied in our lives and in my own personal life. and, And it really is what I would love for you to pray about for the future. Now, for those of you who were not at camp... We talked about three things. And in many ways, the three sermons that I have preached, and even this one, are what I would call my essential sermons. So the theme was essentials. These are the things that I have sort of built my ministry on. Number one, the first thing I've built my ministry on was that we need to persevere when life gets hard. Rather than giving in, rather than being discouraged, rather than going through a period of despair, we need to persevere and we need to get back up. So the first message that I preached on at the camp was, if you get knocked down four times, you need to get back up. Say John We talked about this unique word that says you need to persevere no matter how hard it is. The second thing we said is this, that if we're truly to make a difference in our community and in our culture, we need to be people who are willing to serve. We need to be people who, are, who have a towel that are, as people are walking by, that our first desire is not to be served... But to serve one another. And the problem in the modern church has been is this. Is that many Christians come to church wanting to be served. Well, our mission is not to be served. But to serve. Because that was Jesus' mission. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. But to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then the third message this morning. I talked about vision. That if you want to uh, achieve God's purpose in your life, you have to understand what that is. And you have to think the way God thinks. You have to see through the eyes of God. And when you see through the eyes of God, then you begin to see eternity. And the eternal vision of God is that one day, all nations, all tribes, all people worship God. And that's the vision we need to cling to. And that's the mission that God has called us to toward. So how do we begin? And this is the message today, is that we have to begin small. In this room, I believe, is the opportunity of planting something that I think God can do for some major things in the future. So how many of us, if we think about, like, changing the world, we want to change the world? And I think all of us do. But the problem with changing the world is that we often are limited in what we can do. You know, limitations is one of those things uh, that all of us have. And if you think about our limitations, we often think that our limitations are our liability. We're not mature enough. We're not smart enough. We're not rich enough. And some of us sort of don't want to admit our limitation, but our limitations could either become our greatest enemy or our greatest asset. I heard a story uh, of a young boy who was eight years old, and he was a judo. Um, a student. And one day he uh, wanted to be the best judo uh, master he could be to win all of these tournaments. That was his goal. And for a few years uh, he studied under one of the top judo uh, instructors. But a few years into his program this young boy was involved in a car accident. And this car accident was so serious that his left arm had to be amputated. Well, everyone thought that this little boy's judo aspirations would, would be gone. But the loss of his left arm not only made him more fierce in his determination, he said he, he's going to do something that no other judo uh, uh, boy would be able to do, was is continually on. And so after his uh, healing, he went to his master, and he asked his master to see if he would continually train him. And the master said, I will train you if... You do what I tell you to do. And here's what you need to do. You need to do this one particular training that I'm going to give to you only for you. And you need to do this, nothing else. And this little boy, 10-year-old boy, objected. He said, I want to do everything like anybody else can do. But this master said, no, no. I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. And so this one little arm judo student practiced this one move day after day, week after week, month after month. Well, eventually, uh, this boy be, became really good. And so they entered him into a judo tournament. But, you know, when you see somebody who is, has a limitation or a liability or a disability, you think, you know, it's sort of a sympathy uh, thing. Where it's like, oh, you clap because you, you, you want them to succeed. But deep down in, inside, you know that this little boy would not win any competitions. But something happened in the competition. In the tournament. He started to advance. He went from one level to the other level. And finally, he went to the championship round. And everybody was amazed. And so have you ever seen those videos on YouTube where where the underdog is able to be in a championship round? Well, that was this little boy. And this one-armed boy was now competing for the championship. But here's the problem. He was competing against the best Uh, young judo uh, uh, student uh, in the whole county and people were thinking oh there's no way this little boy's going to win so at least let's cheer him on for at least making it to the very top round but something happened as they were uh, wrestling along uh, the 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 boy who was supposed to win lost concentration and at that point that student that one-armed student did the extremely difficult move that he had been practicing over and over again. And finally, he was able to do something that nobody thought. He was able to put the other guy in submission and win the tournament. And everybody stood up, exploded, because this little one-armed judo boy actually won. Well, at the end of the tournament, some people came up to the master and said, how did this little boy win? What was the secret? And his teacher said he won for two reasons. First of all, he mastered one of the most difficult moves of all of judo. Secondly, the only defense against this move is to get your opponent's left arm. Now, you think about that story. That limitation became his greatest uh, attribute or asset. You see, so often in the kingdom of God, we think because we are not what we want to be, that somehow God can't use us. And so whether that be a disability, whether that be size, whether that be resources, and oftentimes we think we're sort of helpless. The reality is this, oftentimes even here in this country, you think the grass is greener on the other side, right? Have you ever heard that expression, the grass is greener on the other side? Somebody told me that one time, and, and, and the response was, well, the grass that's greener on the other side is really not real grass, it's artificial turf. And in reality, what's green on the other side may not be real. Some of you may be thinking, well, it may be so much easier uh, having a church in America or having a church in, in some other part of the world. This is probably the hardest place. And we always compare ourselves with what we don't have. We always judge ourselves by our limitations. Well, the reality is there are limitations here in this country. There are challenges that we face. But it's not just this country. Around the world globally, Christianity uh, is is being challenged. Christianity Today magazine uh, had an article that said the real cause for Christian outrage. And you know how Christians are mad about everything sometimes? They said that what we should be mad about is the persecution that's happening around the world. And according to the article, they said this, that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world today. With 100 people being martyred for their faith each month. The Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life reports that Christians suffer persecution, discrimination, and harassment in 133 countries. A full two-thirds of countries worldwide. You think about all the stories that are happening. Persecution is on the rise. And it's hard. And and living in this nation, uh, it's hard to sometimes live out your faith. And the question is, is when you are limited you often feel powerless and helpless. And you wish maybe it would be so much easier. But here's the message I want to share with you. That when you are small, that when you are weak, that when you are powerless, that's the best place to be. Because that is the place in which God begins to work. And I want to share with you a parable that Jesus tells. It's a parable found in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 13. It's the parable about the mustard seed. Now, in chapter 13, um, this parable, Jesus tells, you guys may, may have heard it over and over again. But he told this parable. By the way, in Matthew 13, Jesus gives seven parables. And all seven of those parables deal with the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is is communicating to his disciples what the future kingdom would look like. And each of these parables has a description on that future kingdom. But one of the parables that he describes is the parable at the mustard seed. And he says this in verse 31, chapter 13. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. And it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. So here's the point that Jesus is making. He says this, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts out small. It's the smallest. If you go back to the other slide, go back to, uh, yes, let me show you what a mustard seed looks like. A mustard seed is so small that you could actually put hundreds in your hand. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's these small little seeds. And if you were to think about how Christianity began as a movement, it didn't begin in mass. It was actually a very small group of people. It was twelve men, disciples, who were the first followers of Jesus, and then Jesus gathered a few other people, uh, women, and, and 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 other followers, and then that movement began to grow. That small little mustard seed began to grow and became a mustard tree. And you saw the picture there. You know how one seed becomes a tree? It looks like that. And I think to myself, that is how movements begin. And today, what I want to share with you guys is simply this, that I believe God can do an amazing work in this group. It's not because of the size of this group, not because of its influence, but because you are willing to be planted in this place for the gospel. And as we think about the planting of the the mustard seed, there are three things that I want to share with you. Three things to think about. And when you think about uh, the mustard seed, uh, it, it was the smallest seed known in Palestine. And yet I think Jesus makes the point over and over again, it's not the size of your faith that matters, it's the size of your God. If you have a big God, all you need to do is to have a little faith. See, what faith is, that faith in itself is nothing. It's what faith, what what you place your faith in that matters. In other words, um, I could have faith in a chair. I could bring up a chair here and I could say, I believe this chair is going to sustain my weight. And without knowing anything about the chair, I could sit down and the chair could collapse. It doesn't matter how much faith I have. If that chair is not well built, my faith in that chair is irrelevant. You know, the same thing as a Christian. It's not how much faith you have. It's who you have your faith in. And that's a distinction that I want you to think about. It's not you that matters, but it's the conduit that God would use you as a small group to make a large impact. And the more you are willing to do that, the more God can use you. And so the first point I want to make is this, that our greatest impact often begins with the smallest seed. Our greatest impact often begins with the small of the seed. Jesus often used the mustard seed to talk about the size of faith. And I think the reason Jesus says you need to have faith of a mustard seed, and he says this m- many times in the Bible, is to remind us it's not how much faith we have, but it's who we have faith in. And so in, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, he says, if, if you tell a tree, I mean, if you tell a mountain to go into the water, if you have faith of, of a mustard seed, then that mountain will move. One of the things that I think about is, imagine, and a lot of us have the same problem. You know, we have a hard time imagining. We have an if-only mentality. If only I had this, if I only ha- had more, if I only went to this school, or if I, had, uh, if I was married, whatever those if statements are. And the danger is that those if statements paralyze us and cause us to be ineffective don't worry about what you don't have rather celebrate what God has already given to you because what God has given to you and I'm an outsider I'm from I'm, I'm from the U.S. I've never been to Australia before and if the first group of Christians that I see is this church I have so much hope for the gospel and I want you to know that that, that the movement of the gospel is not how many people you start with But it's the right people that you start with. So Jesus chose 12. And you know, here's what happens. When you have something very small and insignificant, it causes a sort of a ripple effect. And here's what I've learned about the kingdom of God. That oftentimes, what happens in in small things eventually make a major difference later on. Uh, In 1961, an MIT scientist named uh, Edward Lorenz ran a series of experiments. And these experiments had unusual results. And Lorenz discovered that seemingly tiny and insignificant changes in his data could produce huge difference in the final results. If you just make a little difference, something on the front end, it would make a big difference later on. At first, Lorenz and the other scientists uh, called this field chaos theory. And they called this uh, research the sensitive dependence on initial data. Uh, Eventually, they made it a little bit simpler. And they called this the butterfly effect. Have you guys ever heard of the butterfly effect? The butterfly effect simply says this. In 1972, he presented a paper that was entitled Predictability. Does a flap of a butterfly's wing in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas. According to Lorenz's theory, the butterfly's wing flapping doesn't actually cause a tornado, but it causes, listen to this, it causes a chain reaction leading to giant changes in worldwide weather patterns. In other words, even tiny, insignificant movements or actions can produce huge changes that affect millions of people. That is why there is such a concern for climate issues because if 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 a situation in brazil the whole all the jungles are disappear then it affects everything else around the world so here's the thing i realize that the ripple effect of god's kingdom is doesn't happen when it's big it often happens in the most obscure places it happens with a small group of people that make amazing difference for the kingdom of god See, some of us are thinking, well, I wish we could do more. Yes, you can do more, but it begins right now, and it begins right here. God uses insignificant people. God uses fishermen, tax collectors. God uses prostitutes. God uses people that are, uh, who, who don't have anything going for them. And God befriends them, and he selects them, and he mobilizes them, trains them, and sends them out. That's how Christianity began. But the second point is this. Our greatest impact will happen when our faith begins to grow. When we begin to see a bigger God. In other words, here's the the point that he makes here in the the parable. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, insignificant, which a man took in his ground and planted. In other words, he's nurturing that seed. He's, uh, He's watering it. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it becomes the largest of the garden plants. It's not just the size of your seed, you could have a very small seed, but it's what you do with that seed. And this, if if I were to sort of use the analogy, every one of you in this room is a seed. And you are being planted in this city. You're being planted. And and the question is, is as you grow and mature in your faith, in your vision of God, then this church will grow. And one of the things that limits us is that Satan comes into a church and he gives us a small view of God. I want to challenge you to have a growing faith. A faith that believes in the impossible. A faith that believes that God can do anything. In Matthew 17, 20, I said this, because you have so little faith, I tell you, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move over there and move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Why will not is that something be impossible? It's not because we can do it ourselves, but because our faith in God allows us to see God move. You know what the greatest gift to us is as, as Christians? It's not strength. You know, sometimes you know we think, "Oh man, if only, if I, if I had a national platform, if if I was the best singer, or if I was the top athletic, Olympic athlete, I can use that platform from the Kingdom of God, and we could win so many souls to Christ." Well, that may be, but oftentimes that's not the way God works. It, throughout the, the Bible, Paul reminds us: "Not many of you are wise. Not many of you were smart. <laughs> not many of you were beautiful. Not many of you are rich." The people that God chooses are not the strong. He chooses the weak. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that Christ's power will rest in me. You know how you know you have growing faith? is that your dependence on God is bigger than than what you would even imagine. In other words, the more you depend, the bigger your God becomes. You know why I think it's hard? And I've said this over and over again. The reason it's so hard is because we're too comfortable. It's too easy. You could come here at 5 o'clock, go to worship, hear a sermon, sing a song, and go out. That's easy. Anybody can do that. Even non-Christians can do that. But you know what we need to pray? Is not, Lord, make this church easier for me. You need to pray, Lord, disturb us. Sir Francis Drake many years ago wrote a a little poem. And he said this. Disturb us, O Lord, when we are well too pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little. When we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when the abundance of things we possess, we have lost sight for the thirst of the waters of life. We have fallen in love with life. We have ceased to dream of eternity. In our effort to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show their mastery. Where losing sight of land, we see the stars. We ask you to push us back from the horizon of our hopes and push us into the future of strength, courage, hope, and love. What a powerful prayer. God, make us uncomfortable. God, make us so that we are not pleased with ourselves, that we are happy with just what we have. Don't settle for second best. God wants you to grow in his vision for him and the opportunities that you have in reaching the world. Some of you are saying, oh, wow. But how can one person make a difference? (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Richard Stern, the president of World Vision, uh, had a theory called the domino theory. And in the domino theory, he said this, that oftentimes it's not a lot of people that make a difference but a few. And and I'll give you an illustration of this. (coughs) Think of, uh, have you ever played dominoes? Do you guys have dominoes here? I, I always have to be culturally sensitive, and I have to ask nicely. And not that you, you don't have the things we have, but some cultures don't have the things that we have. But so you know what dominoes are, right? What are dominoes? Those are little, little cube things, rectangle things that you set, and you knock it over, and then the, you have this little effect, right? And you've seen that on YouTube and, and all that. So imagine, this is what uh, President of World Vision Richard Stern said, imagine Christians are like dominoes that you set. And, and, and Jesus set up the first 12 dominoes, right? The first 12 disciples, and he's knocking the disciples down. Well, what if that every Christian, every follower of Christ is a domino? And he says in 1880, uh, there was a man, thank you, uh, named Robert Wilder. And Robert Wilder uh, grew up in the mission field. He, was, uh, he grew up in India, and his vision for himself was to be a missionary back to India, so he wanted to go back to India. Uh, so he had come back to the States. But something happened. During his college years, um, he signed a pledge to be a missionary. But he was unable to fulfill that f- pledge. And you know why he was unable to? Because he got physically ill. He was unable to travel. And back in those days, he didn't have the medical technology that we have. And so his limitation was his illness. So he began to pray and say, God, I, I, I don't have a lot. I, I'm limited in what I can do. So he encouraged others to take up his task. So Robert Wilder would go from campus to campus, speaking, and encouraging people to go in his place, and challenging them to go. In the audience one day, in a college campus, was a man named Samuel Moffitt. Samuel Moffitt heard Robert Wilder's pledge, and within two years, he landed in a small little country. A hermit nation called Korea. Another domino fell. And a few years later, this, this missionary from America named Samuel Moffat had a conversation with the Taoist named Kil Sun Chu, uh, who accepted Christ at his invitation, and quickly another domino fell. Then something happened. In 1907, Kyo Sun Chu and leaders of, of the city called Pyongyang had a revival that broke out. In January of that year, spontaneous prayer broke out, confession broke out, thousands and thousands of people became Christians, and a fervent movement of the gospel began in 1907 in this country called Korea. When he died, Kilsun Chu died in 1935, over 5,000 people attended his funeral. What's amazing about Korea is that it is a small, obscure nation. That has opened up the gospel. Next to the United States, Korea is the second most sending nation in the world. How do I know that? (laughs) Look at you. Many of you are the byproduct of what God has done. I'm a byproduct of that. Not that I celebrate my Korean heritage saying that, that Koreans are better than anybody else. No, God has blessed us not because we're worthy, but because we were weak. We were small, and out of our smallness, we began to pray and say, God, use us. And when God began to use us, what happened was that the gospel exploded to other parts of the world. And here's the good news. God is not impressed with how big you are. God is not impressed with the degrees that you have. What God is impressed with is a heart that is willing. And for the last 2,000 years, you think about the impact, the growth of Christianity, it happened when it was small. It happened when it was weak. It happened when, when you would not expect it. By the way, let me give you a historical truth that is interesting. There's only been two times in the history where Christianity has exploded exponentially. When it went from almost nothing to, um, to uh, exponential numbers. One first was in the first century. started with 12. Then eventually took over the Roman Empire in 300 years. The second time where Christianity exploded happened actually in the 20th century with things like the Pyongyang Revival in 1907. Then, but the big movement happened in a, with a small group of people in China. Now, in nine, during the 40s, uh, all of you know about China, China had a cultural revolution. And the, uh, the cultural revolution literally destroyed all, they kicked out all the missionaries. And what was left in China was a small remnant of believers And when the missionaries came back in the 1970s, they thought Christianity had been destroyed. What they realized was actually Christianity had grown exponentially. Do you know the greatest openness of the gospel are people from China coming overseas? And, And I've been to China. We planted a church in China. God is doing a work in China. And God is exploding. And here's the thing, that it's not because it's big In terms of they were the wealthiest. Back then they were nothing. They were suffering. They were weak. And God used that to cause a movement. I want to remind you of something. That in your heart, in your life, is the most revolutionary, transformative thing that, 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 that the world can't even compare with. And what you have in your heart is the gospel. Uh, Alan Hirsch, who's actually an uh, Australian theologian, gives this analogy. And he says, imagine we're living in a post-Christian world in the future where there's no more Christians. Let's say in Australia, there's all, the all the churches are now uh, turned into bars and, 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 and uh, you know, nightclubs and, and all that. And there's no Christian anymore except one 80-year-old woman. And that woman is clinging onto to a Bible and she's praying. And Hirsch makes this point. He says that inside that woman is the seed of revolution. That it's not about the woman, but it's the message of the gospel that's in. That God will ultimately transform all the world again. And here's the good news. So often we as Christians get so discouraged, right? We talk about this at the retreat. Because we don't have a future perspective. Our orientation is too much on the present. But when you look at the future... And you look at what happens in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 20. Number one, here's the thing. Jesus will reign. He will conquer. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's the good news. Jesus ultimately is victorious. The end has already been written. And when you know the end, it changes your present. So here's my dream for you. What if the church in Sydney, this little small church, planting here in the middle of two shopping complexes, what if this is the seed in which God plants to bring about revolution, gospel revolution in Australia? Maybe it may not be the end goal, but but, but maybe it's part of the domino that God's doing. And this is what I want you guys to realize, that as long as you are faithful to the cause of Christ, as long as you are obedient to that, now, as long as you're willing to see a bigger vision of God, that God's ultimate kingdom will rule and expand. The last part of the parable is interesting. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took in his field, smallest of all seeds. When it grows, it becomes the largest plant. And then it says this, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. The idea of the bird coming, uh, perching its branches is actually an Old Testament analogy. When the tree grows so big all the birds come, it simply means this, that the kingdom of God will cover all the earth. And ultimately Jesus will reign. I believe that we have the most significant message that the world needs. We have a message that brings wholeness. To a broken society, we have a message that brings couples who are in disrepair back together. We have a message that have people that are addicted to to uh, painkillers or drugs that frees them in, from captivity. We have a message that takes a person who is uh, uh, broken so inside, who's depressed, who's in despair, to bring hope in life. That is the message of the gospel, and so often we forget what we're all about. We're not here just to be a club for us only. We're here to live ourselves as missionaries, as ambassadors. Somebody asked me, as somebody was driving me up here and said, Pastor Ray, why did you name your church Ambassador Church? Well, one reason we named our church Ambassador Church was because we were in D.C. and we saw all these different embassies. And I said, we need an embassy for the kingdom of God. We want to be that embassy, an embassy that's reflective of all nations, all people. But secondly, you know what an ambassador is? An ambassador has no rights of their own. Their rights are given to them by the country that they're representing. I want to be an ambassador for Jesus. I want to rep for Jesus. I want to represent Christ to, our, to the people around me and everywhere else. And so every single Sunday, I commission our people and I say, you are all ambassadors to represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as you represent, God can use you to do things that you would never have imagined. When I first planted my church in D.C., we started with 11, 12 people in our apartment. We had no idea how that church was going to... I I was a young pastor in my 30s, just like Pastor Steve was. By the way, you get to be 50 like me very quickly. It happens overnight. (laughs) It's scary. Uh, Pastors, we age quicker for some reason. Um, And I remember 20 years ago, I started this little church in Washington, D.C. We had 11 people meeting in our apartment. And we're praying about reaching the city. And our prayer was, it was hard. I mean, I have to be honest. It was, it was like we had no idea what the future laid. I, I wish it was so much easier. I wish we knew exactly where we were going. But then if you knew where you were going, you wouldn't need faith. I didn't know where I was going, but I said, let's, let's, let's imagine a church where these 11 of us in D.C., all young adults and young families. We had no kids back then. All young adults, college students, and say, what if we were to plan a church that would um, reach our, our, our friends and family? That was our vision. And we started meeting. That 11 grew to about 20. Uh, by the way, we had our first worship ser- service in our high-rise apartment. And we didn't have enough chairs, so it was BYOC bring your own chairs. <laughs> so, so we had uh, these, all these young adults carrying their own little chairs into, our, into the elevator to come up to and, and to worship. And we had a little keyboard. We had a, a guitar. And we just worshiped the Lord. I look back 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago on that day, and it was the most beautiful expression. Well, that group started to grow and started to reach out to their friends. And back then there weren't any sort of second-gen multi-ethnic churches and this was back in 1996. And we had no idea how this was going to be. But after a few years, it started to take, grow again and grow again. And eventually, uh, God called me back to L.A. And that church, 20 years later, is not only still there, it's growing It's thriving, and they've planted other churches as well. And not only that, we've now planted in L.A. 15 years uh, ago, I planted another church, and then out of our church, we've planted 10 other churches. And I just think to myself, wow, those 11 people that came with me at the very beginning was the seed of the revolution that God is doing. And I am here just to be part of the domino, to hopefully knock you guys down. So that the domino effect will continue. That Steve, that I pass the baton to Steve here in Australia, and then you guys can take the baton and see this street shared with the gospel, to see this nation. Maybe one day, who knows, maybe Australia will become the sending capital of the world. Maybe this is a place where it's, it's so strategic here in the South Pacific. That it is linking the west, the east, and everywhere together. Maybe this is the place. This whole landmass of people, even though it's a small population. What if God started that movement through you guys? A multicultural, multi-ethnic, small group of people. And we could go back and say, wow, it all began with a small mustard seed. Amen? Let me pray for you guys.